The glory days are here to say the 80s horror show. Take a stroll down memory's lane, it's time to start the show. The gory days, the gory days, Welcome to the gory days, the show where we take a stroll down memory slain to remember our favorite horror movies from the 1980s and beyond. And I don't know why it took me so long to get to this movie, because this is definitely one of my favorite horror movies. Spoiler alert for my rating to be... Welcome to the Gory Days, Kyle Leone, your host for another week, and what a week it is. Today we're talking about The Hills Have Eyes, the remake of the original Wes Craven movie. This one, though, is from 2006, written and directed by Alexandre Aha and uh, his friend Gregory Levasseur, who made High Tension, a movie that uh, I was assigned to watch in college, and man... uh, it's one of those movies that I still I still recommend to people in the same way that it was recommended to me by our teacher, which is that it's it's the kind of movie where the the twist is so cool that you forget that it doesn't make any sense. That if you give two seconds of thought to the big twist at the end of High Tension, you'll realize that it completely falls apart under the weight of the uh, plot proper. But we're not talking about High Tension today. We're talking about The Hills Have Eyes. Now, uh, I'm just going to say right off the bat, I have not seen the original Wes Craven 1977, The Hills Have Eyes. And I am completely unfamiliar with all of the characters uh, that are like reimagined or retitled or 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 really just come back uh, as they are, I don't know any of them. I just know them as they are in this version of the movie. So I'm not going to be doing like a comparison analysis between the 1977 and the 2006 remake. No, I'm just going to be talking about the remake here on the Gory Days. So. Why don't we just get right into it? As I mentioned, it was written and directed by Alexandre Aha and his, um, I guess, partner in crime, you would say, Glegly Lavasia, produced by Wes Craven himself, Marianne Madalena, and Peter Locke. This movie came out in 2006. Uh, I want to get to what the hell just happened. So um, how did this movie get made? So Wes Craven... Uh, decides, oh, I want to make a remake of my 1977 original horror movie because I've seen that some of my buddies are getting their horror movies remade. My friend Toby Hooper over there just got the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remade in 2003 and the Amityville Horror just got remade in 2005 and those were big hits, so I should definitely remake something. And so the hunt's on for who's going to write and direct this uh, remake of The Hills Have Eyes. And so... Uh, he and Marianne, uh, Marianne Madalena watch High Tension, and that's it. Uh, Alexander and Gregory got the job and began to rewrite the story in their first American production, which was pretty cool because it would go on to be many, many more movies. <laughs> um, and finally, let's see, it was filmed on location in Morocco, but set in New Mexico, and KNB Special Effects Group Incorporated designed the mutants. Whatever. Here we go. My favorite segment for... The gory days, the hills have eyes. What the hell just happened? Okay, so I wrote it out this time. So this this would be fun. Let's see. Retired detective Big Bob Carter, played by Ted Levine. Does that sound familiar? Huh? Huh? 
How about Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs, the same Ted Levine? His wife, Ethel, played by Kathleen Kinlan from Event Horizon. The two of them are traveling from Cleveland, Ohio to San Diego, California through the desert for their wedding anniversary. And with them are their children, Lynn, Brenda, and Bobby. Lynn, played by Vanessa Shaw. Brenda, played by Amelie de Ravine from uh, Lost. And Bobby, played by Dan Bird. And Lynn's husband, Doug Bukowski, played by Aaron Stanford from uh, X-Men. He played Pyro in X2, X-Men United, and uh, X-Men 3, The Last Stand. Ugh. Lynn and Doug's baby daughter, Catherine, and the family's pet German Shepherds, Beauty and Beast. Whew, that's a packed car on this big giant road trip from Cleveland to San Diego. Wow, it's a long trip. They cross paths with Jeb, a creepy gas station attendant who sends them down a shortcut. Through hell, there's mutants in them thar hills. Yeah, the inbred nuclear mutants in the caves quickly kill Beauty the dog, Big Bob, Ethel, and Lynn, and they steal the wee baby Catherine. And so Doug sacks up and goes a-hunting for his baby, while Brenda and Bobby arm themselves in the camper. Doug eventually hunts his baby down and kills, like, five mutants standing in his way. Meanwhile, Brenda and Bobby rig up some traps and fend off their uh, would-be attackers by blowing up the freaking camper. And uh, by the end of the movie, Doug, Brenda, Bobby, Beast one of the two German Shepherds, and the wee baby Catherine are hugging in the desert next to the burning camper. But they're still being watched! (laughs) Dun-dun-dun! Yeah, so that's The Hills Have Eyes in a nutshell. Man, I... So, I I feel like it's been a while since I've had some history with a movie to talk about, but uh, I'm pretty sure the first time I saw this movie, I was at a, like, acquaintances bat mitzvah you know sometimes you're just friends with people but you're not really friends like you don't go to each other's houses and you don't really hang out but for some reason you still end up on each other's guest lists for birthdays and stuff so i went to this person's bat mitzvah and it was you know at a hotel and afterward they were tired to like their their house or somebody's house and we were uh like you know a bunch of like 12, 13-year-olds all huddled around a TV, and one of the person's like, ooh, let's watch a scary movie. And so somebody pops in, The Hills Have Eyes. And I, I hadn't seen this, and it must have been, like, 2007, maybe, because it was out on DVD. Like, they were able to rent it, but um, it was new enough that it was like, oh, this is the hot new movie. Um, and uh, <laughs> I remember this being, like, maybe the first time in my life that it, like, clicked that, oh, so... That, that, that horror movies could be could be used for more than just like watching a horror movie. So you know everyone's positioning themselves on all the couches and stuff. And for whatever reason, I end up on this couch that's like uh, perpendicular with the TV, so it's lengthwise, so that whoever would have to be sitting on it would cock their head to the right to see the TV comfortably. So instead. Uh, it's me and a buddy of mine who will remain nameless, uh, again, an acquaintance. I don't know why I was with any of these people, but, uh, it's, it's, um, my good, a good male friend of mine who's on the couch. And so I want to watch the movie too. And I also want to be comfortable. So naturally I positioned myself, you know, so I'm laying on uh, his legs watching the scary movie 
And that's what I was, that's what I'm saying is like, I realized for maybe the first time in my life that, that scary movies could be like, oh, when you get scared, you could like grab onto somebody. So it's like the first big scare in this movie. I think I like, you know, tried to grab his legs and be like, oh my gosh, I'm so scared. <laughs> and, and I think I maybe got to do that all of once before he got up and moved and I got the couch to myself. <laughs> and it was like, oh, okay, never mind. I'll just sit here and enjoy the movie. <laughs> So, so that's my relationship <laughs> with the hills have eyes, um, and I still remember retaining a lot of just awesome moments from this movie. God, that first big like the 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 like second act break that the that happens. I mean, you know what I'm talking about—the first big moment where where Pluto and Lizard come in and they fucking destroy the family. Oh my God, it's nuts. <laughs> Where do I go? Where do I go with this next? Uh, I'm sure it'll all. I'm sure all of this will 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 come up when when it logically feels uh, relevant. But I'll just I'll just go into the next segment, I guess, which is Mystery LLC, where I get to ask all my questions that the movie had no interest in answering for me. First and foremost, how many freaking mutants are there? Uh, just with the ending shot of the family, or what's left of the family, hugging, and then the crash zoom out to show, oh no, they're still being watched, just makes me wonder, like, how many of these goddamn mutants there are, and how the hell they're surviving to this, to these, like, extremes uh, off of just cannibalism, just like the errant family or couple or whatever that wanders in, because because we get that big shot when Doug is off, when, when Big Bob and Doug go their opposite directions to try to find help. Uh, Doug it, 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 like sees that big giant crater, and then we, the audience, get to see that there's like there's tons of craters. There's actually a whole bunch of craters, just suspiciously close to each other, like so close. That I don't know what state Google Earth was in back in 2006. I have to imagine it did not exist. But if it did, and this movie, it doesn't even heavily imply it, outright states a falsehood that is the United States conducted like 30 nuclear tests within like football fields of each other in New Mexico. <laughs> No, that did not happen. Yes, the United States performed a bunch of nuclear tests, but not that not there were not like 30 there was not scores of them on American soil like, you know, 100 miles from the nearest town. They were over in the Bikini Atoll and out in the middle of the ocean and stuff. But this movie says, "No, no, no, they were all like right like, oh, they they nuked one there and then they saw, oh, the crater's that big. Okay, let's scooch over just like uh no, a little further, a little further. Okay, that's probably far enough. And then boom. Oh no, the craters overlap. Now it looks like a big butt. <laughs> no. Uh, and then in each of the craters, it looks like there's been like these little uh, shanty towns. They're supposed to be like nuke towns. And the only reason I know that is from like Call of Duty. But, and I guess, no, before that, I guess I knew it from uh, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. But like these little towns that they would set up to be all but fully functioning for, you know, the quote-unquote scientific empirical research of the destructive uh, capabilities of these weapons of mass destruction. Uh, but but here it's like they've reclaimed the nuke towns for their, like, middle little mutant societies. 
Um, which leads me to another question. All of my questions are about the mutants. <laughs> Surprisingly, unsurprisingly, whatever. But <laughs> my, um, what is really my main question is how come some of them like appear to retain their humanity? And I realize I'm like going to kind of bleed over into one of the themes of the movie, but it it would it would I and I and again I haven't seen the original '70s movie, but it just it would seem so cleaner. And so much simpler, it would just make more sense if all of the mutants were, like, practically feral and chaotic, uh, like um, Lizard or uh, Pluto is, even. But some of them can speak and even sing. (laughs) Big brain, I'm looking at you, uh, (laughs) singing the national anthem. But they, they have, like a fridge for their hunks of body parts in that one scene where Doug is wakes up in a fridge and he uh, lights his lighter and it's like, Oh no, there's body parts all around me. And he has to hit the the thing off and the lock looks like it's not going to budge. And honestly, <laughs> that's a scary moment for me. Cause it's like, Oh wow, that thing is not going to budge. He's going to have to figure out some other way to get out of there. Oh, and he can't like quite get enough leverage to, to punch something. He's going to have to do that. Like one inch coffin punch from kill bill Two which I don't think had come out at that point. So, oh no, how's he going to get out of there? But they have like a fridge, whether or not that's actually working, like they have a fridge and it's just, it's inconsistent because half of the mutants that we meet are totally chaotic and they're like cave dwelling, animalistic cannibals. Um, But then you also want them to have like a little hunter gatherer society with like matriarchs and children and like, Oh, excuse me, this like person dragging meat from one end of town to the other, just a, like a woman in a body bag or something like like that's his job or that's just something he's like, oh, man, all right, I got to I got to take care of this. And then as soon as I get this body all uh, laid over here, I got to go chop up those kid skeletons. Oh, man, what a Thursday. <laughs> it's it's just it's frustrating because you have Pluto being like just an uncontrollable juggernaut of destruction going through like bursting through walls and smashing through windows and stuff at the end when Doug is fighting him in, in the house and it's feeling very, it's honestly now that I think about it it's very uh you know Resident Evil 7 probably got some cues from this with people bursting through walls and having to hide under tables and stuff but my point is that he's destroying Big Brain's house. And Big Brain even says, like, I don't get to leave here that much. <laughs> like, as you can see, I'm not I'm not physically able to move all that much. But Big Brain, I mean, but uh, Pluto is just bursting through walls and smashing up his table <laughs> really needlessly. Like, it's just, you know, in a show of how childish, childishly strong and and monstrous he is in a, in a way that really evokes, you know, like uh, Jason or... or or Leatherface, really, or, you know, frankly, Pluto from The Hills Have Eyes. <laughs> um, but it's... It, it, Big Brain just is, like, watching and laughing while his house is getting utterly demolished. And there's no concern for him. It, like, he's supposed to be, from what we can tell, the most intelligent of the mutants. And, like, it's implied that he's the one who's coordinating the attacks via walkie-talkie somehow while still being, like, completely remote in, in like, a Gerard Butler-style way from that one movie. Uh, inside man where he's pulling the strings from inside, but how? He's in prison. How is he still in charge? How is he still coordinating these attacks while being a potato with a walkie-talkie who's also a cannibal? 
I mean, they live in the desert where the weather is at its most extremes. It's the it's freezing cold at night. It's boiling hot during the day. Would you wouldn't you want to have walls? <laughs> and it's not like he wheels into the cave. He doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, I don't know. That's frustrating. And and like I said, like the matriarch, like when Doug is. Uh, looking for his baby in like the quote unquote nursery, like it's like the nursery wing of the little nuke town. And we see the like bald woman who's not even a mutant. She's just a totally normal person, if bald, and could leave the society and go back to being a person if she wanted to, but instead chooses to just raise these barely deformed cute kids on uh, a, a diet of purely human flesh that does not work. That does that is not sustainable. Uh, like, like them, like big brain communicating on the walkie-talkie is is just so frustrating because it raises the question of like, well, how intelligent are they? Like, how are they able to function at this time? There has to be like lean months when travel just isn't that big. Like already they're positioned in a place where it's a dead-end road, so the only way that any people are going to be going into their spider's web is if Jeb, the creepy gas station attendant, is the one who directly chooses to uh, misdirect them and go down the wrong uh, shortcut, then then that would surely mean that there are times where there's nobody coming through, and there, it could be months at a time where there would be no new meat, there would be no new people to, to cannibalize. Then, then how do they do that? Do they go to town? Do they get Jeb to get them, like, <laughs> to, to, like, advertise a detour for, like, a, a, um, a tour bus or something going through? Or, um, or do the intelligent ones, like Papa Jupiter, who really don't look deformed at all for whatever reason, are they the ones who, like, uh, started the deal with Jeb to lure people? Or do they just, do they just go into town and get pizza sometimes? <laughs> Do the mutants like just like hop into their jalopy and drive into town and go see a movie and like get some tattoos and some ear piercings and stuff? <laughs> Where's that movie? Where's that remake? Ah, <laughs> uh, so that's Mystery LLC. I don't have any pressing questions that uh, I I didn't want to ironically ask the movie. Um, so instead, I'm going to move on to some of the oh, I'm going to move on to screaming themies. Ah, this is the segment where I get to talk about the themes uh, that sprung up in this movie. There is one that reared its biggest to ugliest face that I feel like is prevalent pretty much from start to finish. And any other themes that I thought of kind of just like melded themselves back into this original one, which is red-blooded American arrogance. This movie came out in 2006, and I was in high school, so I can't really comment on the socio-political climate at the time because <laughs> I was living in Southern California and I know how much of a bubble that is. Uh, but the movie had some comments to say here as far as Big Bob and his whole family are gun-owning, outspoken Republicans. They pray together, they slay together. <laughs> is that the saying? I don't know. They have guns and they openly mock Doug, a Democrat, for not being comfortable around guns and being kind of a tech-savvy, like, uh, little flamboyant, stringy, like, not football player uh, liberal. He's he's not like the rest of the, the clan here that likes their, their meat red and their guns 
red and their prayers red and everything red. And this podcaster's argument saying that they may represent the kind of pig-headed militarism that resulted in the nuclear tests that birthed, quote-unquote, the very mutants that live in the caves. Which is to say that you know, rampant, red-blooded Republican militarism out of 2000, out of uh, 9-11 comes this like, well, we gotta, we gotta, you know, ramp up our, our uh, arsenals. We gotta make sure that everybody knows that we're not to be fucked with. We gotta make sure that nobody else has as much uh, WMDs as we do. And if there's other WMDs out there, well, then we gotta get them. That's, that's, that's how we're gonna get our mission accomplished. Like, that's, that's something that I feel like this movie is trying to make a statement about, in my opinion. Not so much with the uh, detonations. Those were obviously happening back in, like, the 50s, the out of World War II, uh, into the Cold War. But this movie is, is making more of a statement, I think, about the kind of thing that brought – that brings that all home, which is, okay, America's militarism is what started uh, nuke testing and hoarding and all of that in the Cold War, and now here we are – full circle to uh, being uh, afraid that everyone else has nukes and that they're also going to attack us. And so we got to arm ourselves, which translates, you know, to having a bunch of guns. And it's that kind of pig-headed militarism is that I'm referring to that, uh, you know, it's loosely the same kind of, uh, like, from the mutants' perspective, is like, ah, these are the same kinds of people. Same kinds of people who nuked our ancestors, the same kind of gun nuts. That's going a lot further than the mutants are saying. I mean, I, that's that's me gleaning from the uh, source material. The mutants themselves are eager to kill anybody, Doug included. They don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. If you're a liberal, if you hate guns, they're still going to kill you. But it's the same red-blooded American arrogance that lands this particular family in this desert anyway because it's stated multiple times in the movie. Several characters say that they would definitely already be in San Diego by now if they had just stayed on the freeway, but Big Bob, the patriarch of the family, who's the man's man and is the retired, uh, what, cop or something? Whatever. Um... (laughs) Is, is the one who decides that I want to see the desert. I want to see how beautiful our American desert is. And even Jeb, who lives out in the desert, is the first to say, there ain't nothing to see in the desert. <laughs> but that's, that's Bob for you. It doesn't matter. That's capitalism for you. And so Doug, on the other hand, is a Democrat who married into a Republican family. And once again, I feel like it's the movie's messaging that results from... Doug is ultimately like allowed to save the day only once he's realized how much he has to lose and thus what's truly important and the ballistic power he has to protect it. The ballistic power. It's a subtle transition. It's a shuttle. Sh- it's a subtle shift in the movie that I looked for like a couple times because I wanted to see like I feel like it's a bigger moment. It should be a bigger moment than it is. Um, but when he transitions from using uh, bats and physical things to a straight-up gun, because it's then that he's rewarded by getting his baby back once he's, like, uh, resolved to using a firearm, which 
I think I'm going, I think you could make the argument to say like, well, Kyle, I think that's a little obtuse, but in my opinion, it's capped when Doug impales Pluto through the neck with a fucking American flag. Oh, and let's just ignore, uh, not to ignore Big Brain singing uh, the national anthem in its fucking entirety. No, I'm making the argument here that, yeah, Doug is the Democrat and he's being punished for it until he's finally rewarded by realizing that he's a red-blooded Republican who needs a gun to protect his family just like he should have known from the beginning. And, and it's only through this trial by fire that he's going to become the person he needs to be, which is a gun-owning, oh my God, just American asshole who comes out of this, comes home, assuming he doesn't get you know immediately eaten and cannibalized and uh, whatever by whoever was watching him at the end of this movie, goes home and is that one dude who it's like, yeah, I used to be a Democrat, but let me tell you about this one time. I was with my family, and we went down to New Mexico, and I was afraid of guns, too. And then I picked up this accent at some point, but don't you mind about that. Or my dialect that I suddenly come to fancy, too. Tell you what? <laughs> no, I was along the New Mexican border, and a bunch of these no-good mutants came down. <laughs> and Jesus fucking Christ, they burned my father-in-law alive. They raped my sister-in-law. They murdered my wife. And then they took my baby into the hills. And you know what I did then? I became a Republican. I hitched up my britches. I loaded up my 12-gauge, and I went a hunting. And I murdered every last single one of those sons of bitches. And you better believe that for the rest of my life, I am a red-blooded, card-carrying member of the NRA voting whoever's on that Republican uh, ballot. Yeehaw! <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, that's how I'd have to imagine Doug is completely changed by this movie. But can you blame him? The movie itself is like rewarding, is pushing him in that direction. And so that's my theme of red-blooded American arrogance. Um, the other one is one that I kind of picked up is this term called generational dissonance. Uh, I don't know how accurate this is. I read it on one article, but this particular article seemed to posit that Wes Craven likes to play with generational dissonance a lot in his films. Generational dissonance in this case to mean uh, the friction between younger members of family and the older members of family, if that's not obvious. So we've got the two warring factions. We've got the mutant family versus the non-mutant family, the Carter Bukowski family. And so we've got two uh, black sheeps in each family, too. Black sheep? We've got two black sheep in each family, too. In the Carter Bukowski family, we've got Doug. And in the mutant family, we've got Ruby, the cannibal with a heart of gold, <laughs> who, who steals uh, Bobby's hood in the beginning and uh, is, like, in my opinion, Little Red Riding Hood. But Doug defies his family, quote-unquote, in this case, not necessarily um, to mean literally his blood family here, uh, but more uh, metaphorically, his humanity family or his moral compass family by becoming a killer. You know, he has to abandon and defy his internal compass and his internal humanity and become a bloodthirsty, ruthless thing that he never wanted to become. And Ruby defies her family 
by doing the opposite, by being a savior, by instead of taking life and being a monster like the rest of her family wants her to be, uh, instead decides to be a good person by saving Catherine and then saving Doug uh, by sacrificing herself and thus redeeming herself. It's it's weird that Ruby has to do that at the end. I'm going to get back to this theme really quick, but I think it's weird that Ruby has to sacrifice herself, that she has to redeem herself just because she was born a mutant that we, the audience, me, the viewer, am supposed to hate her when she's shown repeatedly to be sympathetic. And I guess that's that's supposed to be the through line is that we keep seeing her and it's like, oh, who's that Who's that one ray of hope in this utter shit storm? Uh, maybe she'll be uh, nice at some point. And then sure enough, she is. But we knew she would be nice and we always expected her to be nice. So for her to sacrifice herself implies a redemption arc, but she never did anything bad for us to need redemption for Like we never see her perform something that she's like, Oh, I feel terrible about that. I never should have done that. Oh, I hope I get a chance to redeem myself later. It's nothing. It's just, she shows up. She is constantly doing good. And then at the end, she redeems herself for all the good she did by killing herself. It's just a clean way to get rid of all the mutants so that, you know, the audience doesn't have to go like, wait, but what about the last mutant? Um, But of course, it doesn't matter if you were counting. (laughs) But yeah, the theme of family and the theme of generational dissonance, that there are the uh, older members of the family in the mutant family. It's Pluto, it's Big Brain, it's Lizard, it's, uh, what's the other guy? Papa Jupiter. In the Carter Bukowski family, it's um, Pop. It's Big Bob. It's these people on both sides who fundamentally disagree with everything that you that that the that they believe in. You know, it's interesting. I feel like I'm experiencing a little bit of that in my life right now. Is some generational dissonance that is only natural for uh, you know the younger generation to simultaneously rebel and also build off of the uh you know gifts and lessons and things that were given to them it's a chance for like the old to mix with the new to become something even better that works uh and so anyone who resists that you know is either going isn't going to be rewarded they're going to be on the wrong end of history or uh time will be the judge of them as people who learn to adapt and grow with uh, new opportunities and ideas will be rewarded with saving their baby. Oh no, I'm a Republican. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, oh, so I realized on um, my last episode that since I do my, I, I, I got rid of a segment that I need to reinsert. And that segment is kills, kills, kills. Cause man, there are a lot of kills in this movie and I wanted to make sure that I got them all. Um, like, right off the bat, in the opening scene, there's three scientists that are walking around with Geiger counters. They'll get killed by Pluto with a pickaxe, so that's three right off the bat. Poor Beauty. Aw, Beauty. Beauty got cut open off screen, probably by Goggle. Jeb shot himself in, under the chin with a shotgun. Oh, my God. Uh, when Big Bob, like, is sun-damaged and dehydrated and wandering around looking for him... You keep expecting somebody to get him, but instead he just finds Jeb out there on in, in the outhouse. And then, man, I remember finding, I remember watching the unrated version at some point. They linger on his face, his blown off face for way longer. Oh, God. 
Uh, let's see. We got Bob, who was burned to death. We got Lynn, who was shot by Lizard. Oh, man, when she, like, flies back from that revolt. I, I forgot what Bob was uh, packing, but, man, that thing packs a punch. Oh, man, Lynn shot also by Lizard. Jesus Christ, that scene where Lizard causes so much chaos in, like, one freaking scene where all the characters are, are all over the place. Oh, God. It's, it's, it's crazy. Like, a lot of the horror in this movie comes from being, if you've, have you ever been camping? And, and I don't mean, like, you know, setting up a tent in the back of your woods or, or even being in your car in the woods or even being in the woods. I mean, have you ever been camping, like, out in the desert where there is nothing? Have you ever been camping out in the desert when there's a new moon? When there is absolutely no sources of light anywhere? Oh my god, I remember being at Joshua Tree once, and it is, the silence is terrifying. It's, it's so stark. There's no, there's no echoes. There's no, there's no sound. Oh my gosh, it's, it's so creepy. And so that, those trips of me going to Joshua Tree and like, you know, getting out at my tent at two in the morning to go take a piss and just being surrounded by the absolute darkness, just complete darkness. If not for the little light, like I didn't, it wasn't even a cell phone back then. If not for my little like pen light kind of thing, it would be absolutely pitch black. And I'm sitting here watching this movie, picturing being out in the middle of that desert. God, even in the daytime, just surrounded by nothing. But, but at night, especially with the knowledge, knowing that somebody, some people, especially people, people are so much scarier than animals. People are out there. People who know this desert. Like, I'm in their house, basically, and I'm completely lost. I'm in their house, I'm blind, and I'm underwater. And this is their domain. <laughs> I should not be here. Oh, it's so scary. Oh, uh, yeah, let's see. Goggle got his throat ripped out by Beast. Yeah, see, finally we start switch. The first few deaths are all the other family, and then the last half of the movie is all the mutants getting killed. Goggle gets his throat ripped out by Beast. Pluto gets hacked by Doug with an axe straight down the face after getting a, a flag stuck through his throat, like I said, the American flag. Cyst. This, this guy who's just minding his own business gets hacked by uh, Doug with the axe. And then uh, the killing blow is where he turns the axe around to the pick side. It goes right through his eyeball. So badass. Big Brain gets mauled off screen by Beast, which is super deserved and super satisfying. It's so satisfying when uh, Big Brain is like, Lizard, kill the baby. And then he turns around like all smug with himself. And then we see Big uh, beast there snarling it's such a big like the audience cheering moment of like yeah fuck yeah fuck this inbred deformed <laughs> handicapped asshole for being bred in a society with absolutely no resources or access to medical facilities or education or anything fuck that mon fuck that guy for becoming a monster I'm only going to say this once, but I don't know what was so wrong with us in 2006 that we had zero empathy for our villains. I don't know what it was, but it seems like if this movie were to be done again, like even now when I'm watching it in 2020, I can't shake this lens where I feel this like phantom sympathy for all of the villains. Like, God, except for Lizard, except for Lizard. Um, but I just... 
It's like all of the mutants, I hate to say it, are victims, are victims themselves. If like Jeb, there's so many responsible parties here that could get them help. That like the it's supposed to be like the whole the hills have eyes thing is supposed to be based on like a folklore. I, I didn't bother looking it up, but it's supposed to be folklore that I'm pretty sure was just the British making up a horrible story about the Scottish to, to just, you know, make them sound like monsters. But it was about that. It was about like a bunch of Scottish people who retreated up into the like mountains and caves inbred and then came down to slaughter people and bring them back and eat them. Um, and yeah, like rampant racism, just complete made up shit. But that's, that's like what's being perpetuated in universe here is like, uh, as long as, well, I guess when Jeb kills himself, that raises an interesting question of like, what happens now? It all like allegedly ends with Doug. There's not going to be like a search party. Maybe there'll be a search party for God. The whole family's gone. Maybe they'll just assume that the car broke down. They'll go find the car wreck. Is that what the second movie's about? The Hills Have Eyes uh, two, where they've got like a bunch of like AK 47s and stuff. It's funny. There was a weird trend in the two thousands. This movie did it. Uh, um, Oh, uh, what was the other one? 28 weeks later where they take uh, the sequel and they just like, th like they, they take the original, which is like kind of uh, cerebral, not really still still somewhat actiony. But then they'll take the sequel and they'll just throw a bunch of like military dudes at it and they'll go, OK, yeah, now it's an action movie. Now they've got AK-47s and M40s and they're running around and they're jumping out of helicopters and it's all badass. Just put military guys in it and then boom, you got a sequel. Uh, the, the Hills Have Eyes 2 did that. Uh, it's funny when you're looking through the deaths of all the Hills Have Eyes 2 deaths. So many of them are bayonet. <laughs> uh, let's see. Big br uh, Lizard gets tackled off a cliff by Ruby. Ruby herself falls to her death. And then Papa Jupiter is stabbed in the head by Brenda uh, while he's like, burned from the caravan explosion that he may or may not feel <laughs> it's 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 weird but that's all of the kills so what is that that's like 16 15 or 16 kills and every single kill is so freaking brutal and bloody and uh man these guys these two guys know what they're doing with uh in the realm of horror but i love that i i, I love that the movie is really at the bottom of everything it's about doug our tech-savvy everyman who, you know, doesn't like football necessarily and isn't ready to get his hands dirty and, uh, you know, for like 2006 is as tech-savvy as they get by being a cell phone salesman. It's funny, he's he's basically my dad. Like, my dad sells cell phones to bigger uh, companies, but um, I guess he's, he's more of a... It's funny, he pretty much is my dad, but um, Doug, who has to then force his hands to get dirty and get rid of his new way of thinking and embrace the old one of revenge. I don't love that it's, you know, a, a, a not very veiled Republican gun rights thing, but I, I do like the, you know, I've said it on here before, how much blood is a man willing to shed to save his family? That's what this is. How much is he willing to sacrifice to save his baby? It's a fun movie. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, The Hills Have Eyes. Why don't I rate this movie on a scale of one to five thumbs, one being the worst and five being the best gosh i'm going to give the hills half eyes you know what i'm going to give it four thumbs 
because I, f- I didn't realize that this was a Fox Searchlight movie. It's an indie movie, technically. And man, it delivers. It really does. There's so many movies where I feel like I would fall asleep in the middle act. Or it's just, even, even like if I didn't remember what was going to happen, I'm not interested and I don't care. This one is just beaded out so nicely where they set up the family. It really feels like a tight-knit, believable family. I love the family so much. And then the big, horrible fucking thing happens. And it's like the dialogue from then is mostly like screaming and crying and sobbing and grunts and stuff. Because the the second half of the movie is is, uh, Doug becoming like Rambo and going into the town to to go on a killing spree and save his, his baby. And then the the brother and sister have to rig up the house and uh, the camper, and it's like a, a terrifying home alone. It's 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 a lot of fun. Um, so I'm going to give it four thumbs, and I'm going to give my thumbs. Oh, I have to give one to uh, Aaron Stanford, the guy who plays Doug. He does such a good job in this movie, Got much better than Pyro, the douchebag from X2, X Men United. I'm going to give another to Ted Levine for improvising all of his lines. I had no idea, but yeah, all of his lines were improvised, which makes them sound so freaking natural. He does a great job with that. You know what? I hate this. I hate this, but I have to give a thumb to Lizard, uh, Robert Joy, who played Lizard. I read a quote uh, during my research that said something like they had to find actors who not only could wear the makeup and perform in the makeup, but who also could like embody this savagery that the script called for. And my God, there are so few characters in horror movies that I, I simultaneously hate and am 100% terrified of i have no idea what they're capable of they apparently don't feel to seem to feel the same amount of pain in the same way that we do he is so scary and robert you do a great job with one of the most despicable characters i don't know how an actor can do that i don't know how they can do what lizard does so believably oh my god it's awful it's so weird it's bittersweet i hate it i love it i hate it i love it um and then my last one uh, my last thumb, I should say, I'm going to give to the wee baby Catherine, Maisie Camilleri Preziosi, who, let's see, if this came out in 2006 and she was probably like uh, one, then let's see, 2006, and it's 2020 now, 18 years, 18, she's probably about 20 years old. No, that's pretty funny. She could have been a guest on this episode. (laughs) It's weird that she was the only... Usually they cast twins because of, you know, just like uh, child filming regulations and just ethics, frankly. Uh, But she was the only baby in this one, so... Yeah, I could have given my thumbs to other people, but sue me. I also realized that I forgot to bring up my question about why they all have names related to uh, Greek mythology, or Roman mythology, I should say, but I don't care. That's my episode. Thanks for listening to The Gory Days. If you want to hear more from me, uh, listen to my other podcast, Feeling It Out with Kyle and Connor. Or you can just follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Twitch, Patreon, everything under the sun, at The Gory Days. Until next time, stay scary out there. Got a gory day.